Hallelujah, everyone. <laughs> what a wonderful time of worship. Amen? Amen. Well, we've got people watching from all over the world. I was just sent a text here. They're watching from Brazil, Canada, Colombia, Denmark, Finland, France, Germany, India, Kenya, Malawi, Malaysia, the Netherlands, the Philippines, Poland, Romania, Serbia, Sicily, Singapore, Slovakia, South Africa, South Korea, Sweden, United Kingdom, and United States. I read them in alphabetical order so no one would be offended. All right. Well, it's good to be in the house of the Lord, isn't it? Online or in the house, even better. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, help me to present your word as you desire, Lord. I pray that you'll give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to us. I pray, God, that um, you'll help me speak in a way that is clear, which is confident in you, and that we will all come out of this place different people because we've been challenged by your word, I pray. Amen. Well, we're in a series called Moving Forward, and tonight's message is called Moving Forward by Going Back to God's Word. Moving Forward by Going Back to God's Word. We're going to look at Nehemiah chapter 8. Pastor Chad asked me to preach a couple of times this month, and I said, would you let me preach from Nehemiah chapter 8? It's one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible. The Lord said to Jeremiah, stand in the ways and see and ask for ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it. To walk in it, we have to go back to the ancient paths. So in this series from Nehemiah, we're going to look now at chapter 8, and there are four main points I'm going to make. One is this, moving forward by knowing God's word, moving forward by understanding God's word, moving forward by teaching God's word, and moving forward by applying God's word. Now, you were standing for worship, but I'm going to ask you to stand now as we read God's word from Nehemiah chapter 8. We're going to read verses 1 to 12. And you'll see why I asked you to stand. Now, all the people gathered together as one in the open square that was in front of the water gate. And Ezra the scribe brought the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with the understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday before the men and women and those who could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood which he had made, they had made for the purpose and beside him at his right hand stood, and how many of you want to try to pronounce these words, these names, Bethatia, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Maaseah, and at his left, Pediah, Mishael, Malchiah, Hashum, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people said, Amen, Amen while lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Yeshua, 
בני, שרביאז, ימין, עקוב, שבתאי, הודיה, מעשיה, קליטה, עזריה, יוזבד, חנן, פדיה, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. We'll read more of this passage a little bit later in the message. You may be seated. So the walls had just been built in a miraculous 52 days. Now, without physical walls, the city would be vulnerable. It would, could easily be destroyed by an enemy army. Five days following this great accomplishment, another thing had to be built, something that unless it's built, the whole nation will be vulnerable and be destroyed as a people. And what is that? The people needed to build up, get edified in the word of God, in that unshakable spiritual foundation of God's word. So on the first day of the seventh month, the day of the Feast of Trumpets, that day which we now call Rosh Hashanah, it's the new biblical new year, So on the first day of the new year, it was time for first things first. And that first thing is to gather before God and to hear what he has to say. And so people came to an open square at the water gate. That's not in Washington, that's in Jerusalem. And just as the sun rose over the Mount of Olives, there they were at this eastern side of the city at the water gate. And the sun shone down upon them, but it was very early in the morning. They would have had to get up before dawn to get there in time for the light, it says in the text. It doesn't say morning in the Hebrew. It says when light came, they would have had to get up very early. Now, why was it called the water gate? Well, it was at the primary source of water for the whole city, the Gihon Spring. Now, when you get a bi-monthly bill from the water company in Jerusalem, it's called the Gihon Corporation. It's named after this spring where the water gate stood. It's an appropriate place for people to gather to honor and to listen to God's word. I'm reminded of Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26, that Yeshua makes holy and cleanses his church by the washing of water with his word. That's what the text says. Now, it was the people themselves who called for Ezra to read the scriptures. They were hungry for God's word. So hungry that they stood in that square for at least five hours. I said stood in that square for at least five hours. Some of us find it hard to stand and worship for more than 20 minutes. And some of us have a good reason because of health reasons. But they stood for five hours to listen to God's word. And it says that, the, that Ezra, the scribe, stood on a platform of wood which they had made for the purpose. Now, if you read the King James Version, it says that he stood upon a pulpit of wood. Can you imagine me standing on this pulpit for the rest of this message? It's good that we have new translations to help us get the real meaning. It means a high platform. It's the word migdal. It's a tower. He stood very high above the people to read the word of God. At the end of the reading, we see that they wept and they mourned. They seemed deeply moved and convicted that they had not fully obeyed the word that they had just heard. And now that they heard it loud and clear, they confess their sins, they repent, and they obey what they heard. And we'll discover that the scriptures that 
they read that day or heard that day would be read many more times the rest of that holiday season, especially during the Feast of Tabernacles. Don't you wish that we would have a back to the Bible revolution in our day and see our cities, see our nations, see our whole world transformed and turned right side up. But we will have to go back to go forward. Today, most people in our world are going fast forward, but in the wrong direction. And if they don't do a mid-course correction, their path will lead to destruction. The Lord said to Israel through Hosea in chapter four, verse six, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. There's a growing disregard for God's word in our world. And in fact, it has crept even among the body of believers. There's biblical illiteracy, but there's also irresponsible treatment of the scriptures. Too many believers today have pet theologies and pet theories and pet sins that they justify by focusing on certain scriptures but ignore the others. You've heard of their prosperity gospel and, and, and those who teach it have Bible verses to back it up. And God does want us to prosper, but God also wants to prosper us so that we can bless others. They happen to pick and choose which verses fit their theology. And then we have the extreme grace that's being taught. I call it greasy grace. And there are lots of verses on grace in the Bible, but the apostle Jude gives us a warning that ungodly people creep in among the body of Yeshua who turn the grace of God into lewdness. That's Jude 4. Lewdness is speaking of immorality and immoral behavior. And then there's taking verses out of context. Let me give you an example of this with a bit of sick humor. You know that God wants everyone to commit suicide, right? Matthew 27, 5 says, Judah, Judas hanged himself. And then we go to Luke 10, 37, and it says, go and do likewise. Then we go to John 13, 27, and what thou doest, do quickly. Put that together and you know what you con conclusion you come to. A text without a context is a pretext. Now you can try and read the Bible without bias, but many of us have our own biases and it's hard to get rid of them. We have to have an open mind to read the scriptures as if we've never read them before because sometimes we've come to wrong conclusions or we've been taught in the wrong way and that's a serious thing. Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, speaking of Paul's letters, he says, in them are some things hard to understand which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do also the rest of the scriptures. And then there are those who disregard the scriptures by challenging the inspiration and the authority of the scriptures. It's shocking to discover how many professors in Bible seminaries question the miraculous stories of the Bible, question the accuracy of the scriptures. But it's interesting to see how people responded when Ezra, the scribe, read those scriptures on that day at the water gate. It says the people answered, amen, amen. And that Hebrew word amen is related to the word emunah, which means firmness, reliability. When they said amen, amen, they're saying, we affirm what we just heard. We believe it. It's reliable. Now the writer 
In Psalm 119, confidently affirms the authority and the veracity of God's word when he says to the Lord, all your commandments are faithful. And in verse 160, he declares, the entirety of your word is truth. It's time to stop disregarding God's word. It's time to stand up and honor God and honor his word. It's time to say God is true and every man a liar. So I've talked about this problem of widespread disregard and the twisting of God's word for our own purposes. Now I want to talk about how to move forward by going back to God's word. First of all, we're going to talk about moving forward by knowing God's word. Verse 5 of our text in chapter 8 of Nehemiah says, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. Ezra didn't just read his favorite verses that day. He opened the book. Now, we don't know if this is the whole book of Moses, which would be the four or the five books of the Pentateuch, or one of those books. And if it's one book, it's probably Deuteronomy, scholars say. Now, to move forward, we need to know God's word, all of it, not just portions of it. Paul, the rabbi and apostle, was like Ezra, the priest and scribe. And Paul says in Acts chapter 20, verse 27, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. One of the reasons I like expository teaching and preaching is because you go, by, you go verse by verse through the books of the Bible and you're dealing with every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Topical preaching is good, but you have to be careful because there's a danger that you choose topics that are your favorites and you avoid the ones in the Bible that are not as favorite. For almost a year now, I've been reading the Torah and the Haftorah portions every day, verse by verse. I'm almost at the end of Numbers and about to head into Deuteronomy. And the cycle will end on the day after the end of Feast of Tabernacles or the last day of the feast, which is Simchat Torah, the joy of the Torah. Now these portions of scripture that are being read in the synagogue, we read here at King of Kings, we read only portions of them because of time. But because I'm going through these scriptures that are being read in the synagogue, it's given me a great opportunity just to speak to Orthodox Jews about what they're reading that week. And I'm with them. I'm on their page, as it were. I should make the point that the Haftarah readings from the prophets, the second reading, are also a bit of a pick and choose thing. Most of the prophetic verses that most clearly point to Jesus as the Messiah are not included in the weekly reading cycle. Scholars who have studied the history of the cycle of readings admit that those portions were intentionally left out because followers of Jesus use those scriptures to prove that Jesus is Israel's Messiah. And there were occasions when Jesus said to the religious leaders of his day, have you never read the scriptures? Or you are mistaken not knowing the scriptures. I was with an Orthodox rabbi the other day and I read him these words, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrata, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. And he, he stopped and he said, are you reading that from the New Testament? I said, no, actually, I'm reading from Micah chapter five. He didn't even know it was in his Bible. He's 17, 72 years old and he's a rabbi. But that portion is left out. In fact, this very week, 
It's parts of chapter five of Micah and chapter six, and we read, Dirk read some of those verses, but they leave out that critical verse, chapter five, verse two, where it clearly the Messiah must come out of Bethlehem, must be born, and then rule over Israel. Now, I don't want to be too hard on Orthodox Jews in this regard, because especially in many of our ranks, maybe even some in this very room, have never read the Bible from cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation. And I would encourage all of you to get into a cycle of readings. I'm not saying you have to do the Torah and Haftor portion, but go to uh, the YouVersion app or go to their website and you'll see all kinds of different uh, reading lectionaries to get you through the Bible every year. I really encourage you to do that. So I'm talking about going forward by going back to the scriptures, going back to know what the Bible says. Secondly now, I wanna talk about going forward by going back to understand the scriptures, not just to know them, but to understand them. Nehemiah chapter eight, verse seven and eight of our text says this, also Yeshua, Bani, Sharibia, Yamin, Akub, Shubatehai, Shabbatai, Betsim, Hodiah, Maaseah, Kelita, Azariah, Yozabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law. And the people stood in their place, so they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. So it's not just Ezra reading the scriptures, but he has on both of his sides on the platform 13 Levites who are there to help the people understand. And then there were other Levites as well, and many scholars say that some of them probably gathered people in small groups, and as the scripture was read in Hebrew, they would translate the Hebrew into Aramaic. Why Aramaic? Because Aramaic was the main language of the Jewish people following their exile. When they were sent into Babylon, Jeremiah said, when you're in that foreign land, settle down. Pray for the the country and be a good citizen. Well, they also settled down and learned the language of Babylon, which is Aramaic. And so when they come back to Judea to build the temple and to build the walls again, they don't understand Hebrew. The rabbis do, the scribes do. Ezra would have known the Hebrew. He read it from Hebrew. But the rest of the people, probably most of the people, would not have understood the Aramaic. Now, it's interesting that we discover that in the, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, documents found before the time of Jesus, most of them, and then in other places have been found what are called the Targums. These are written translations of the Hebrew scriptures into Aramaic, and there are various kinds. Not only are they a translation, but some of them are also a commentary. It's kind of like the Amplified Bible. I don't know if you ever read the Amplified Bible. It's not just giving you the text from Greek, but it's giving you a bit of commentary as well. And I just have made it a habit for this past several months to go day by day as I go through the Torah portion, the Haftor portion, to look at the English translation of the Aramaic of the Hebrew. That's kind of weird, isn't it? But why am I doing that? Because that commentary in the Aramaic is giving you insights into how the Jewish people understood the scriptures at the time of Jesus and even before the time of Jesus. Those are great commentaries. 
and is very helpful to someone like me who loves to study the word and to teach the word. So these Levites were giving the sense, giving the understanding to the people, translating it into their Hebrew tongue, but also commenting on it. Now, scholars also say that by the time Yeshua came to the earth, the synagogues were established, and in the synagogue, in the readings, not only did they read the Hebrew, but they, after one verse or after a paragraph or so, they would also read it in Aramaic. And isn't it interesting that the sign, the inscription over Jesus' head as he hung on the cross were the words, King of the Jews. And in what language were those words written? You'd think it would have been Hebrew, but it was Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. We got quite a challenge, don't we? When, when God... Uh, took the people of, uh, they built the power, Tower of Babel. They all spoke one language and there was, it was powerful what they could accomplish because they could all communicate easily and then God, as it were, <laughs> took away that power and they scattered and they end up with thousands of languages and dialects today. But it's clear from our text that simply hearing and reading the word of God, while it's very helpful, especially as the Holy Spirit inspire, uh, gives us revelation, we also need to study the word to understand it fully. And I encourage every one of you to study, not just read the scriptures and doing it every day. You know, I've, I've gone back to school myself. I'm pretty old now, but I went back to school and I was always the, I was the oldest guy in the class. I went back and did a doctoral program at Asbury Seminary over the past four years. Just took a course that I completed, a 30-week course in advanced biblical Hebrew uh, credited by the Hebrew University. And I'm probably going to start an Aramaic course. So I'm taking this stuff pretty seriously. What do you think? And that's why I'm excited about preaching from Nehemiah chapter 8 this evening. I'm not telling everybody to do what I'm doing. But if you want to ever teach at least in a, at a college level or seminary level, it's probably a good idea to study these languages. I used to teach New Testament Greek 40 years ago in a Bible school in Canada before we moved to Israel. And I, I, my textbook was called Greek to Me. <laughs> and it used word picture association to help the students memorize the Greek words. And I would I would take, I'd go to the whiteboard and I would draw these crazy pictures. I'm not much of an artist. And the students just kept laughing at my, my artwork. And so the laughter would go down the halls of the college and the next semester my class was packed with new students because they wanted to have a big laugh as well. Anyway, I take this stuff seriously. Our mission statement here at King of Kings is King of Kings is called to be a compelling, Messiah-centered, spirit-empowered, disciple-making community, revealing the true face of Yeshua to Israel and the nations. What is a disciple? If we're a disciple-making community, what kind of people are we trying to, to make? <laughs> well, disciple in New Testament Greek means a student or a learner. And so we think it's really important because we are called to be disciples and to make disciples that we teach God's word as best we can. How important is it to be a learner, a student? It was important to Yeshua. It says in Luke chapter 
I think it's 4 verse 52, at least I have the verse right, and Yeshua increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. And it says in Luke 6 verse 40, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. We believe everybody in our congregation should be part of a small group, a home group. And one of the great strengths of a small group or home group is the fellowship that you can have. You know, in a room like this, you're looking at the back of people's heads and you don't have time to get to know each other well, but in a small group in a home, and I encourage you to be part of one, we've got several here, that fellowship is probably the strongest thing about a home group. Now, you can study the Bible and we encourage every, everybody to do that, but I can tell you this, if you want fellowship, you have to have interaction. If you have interaction, then you gotta let everybody speak into what, what they feel the Bible is saying to them. It's called an inductive method. And that's great, but at times it can be pooled ignorance. In other words, nobody's prepared to really get back behind the text, do a deep dive, and when questions arrive, have an answer to those questions. But this is where discipleship comes in. And every semester in the spring and the fall, we do what we call discipleship classes. And Pastor Chad and I just taught a course just a few, ended just a few weeks ago called Bridging the Testaments. And we did a deep dive into showing how the Old Testament and the New Testament are really one book. There's a scarlet thread of truth that goes through the entire scripture. And if God has not changed, then theology has not changed. We don't go from one kind of theology to another but it's all one truth and we study it together. Now I come to the third point. We need to, to go forward, we need to go back to teaching God's word. Now some of you in this room are gonna say, well, that doesn't apply to me. Okay, I wanna be a good student, I get that, but you want me to be a teacher? I remember when we started a college and career ministry in Toronto many years ago and, and uh, these were young adults, many of them university students, and they told me, hey, I, I can't teach. And I wanted to help them break into small groups in the church building, and each of them would be a facilitator, a teacher. And almost all of them said, I can't do that. Well, we trained them how to do it, and they did a really good job. I believe that every believer should be a teacher. Where do I get that from, from the scriptures? Now we know that the Levites in our story here are teaching the people. And we know that was a major uh, job of the, of the Levites back in the, in the time of the Bible. They give understanding, they teach the people. And we know this about Ezra himself, how gifted and skilled he was in his teaching. Back in Ezra chapter seven, verse six, verse nine and verse 10, it says, then Ezra came up from Babylon and he was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses which the Lord of God of Israel had given. Then verse nine, on the first day of the first month, he began his journey from Babylon. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem, according to the good hand of his God upon him. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. Okay, well that's Ezra. He's an expert. He's a scholar. He's a scribe. What about you and me? Well, the writer to the Hebrews rebukes some of his readers when he says this in Hebrews chapter five, verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. So there was an expectation that the readers should be teachers by now. 
And I think the great commission that Yeshua gave in Matthew chapter 28 makes it clear that teaching ought to be the job of every disciple. Every student should become a teacher. Matthew 28, 19 and following, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Very few, if any of those disciples had gone to teacher's college or any kind of training program to be teachers. They were pretty common folks. The smartest one was probably Matthew. He's a tax collector. He's probably good at math, but maybe not so good at theology. But it appears that none of them were rabbis before they met Yeshua, and yet they were told to go and teach. God may call you to teach hundreds, even thousands at a time, it's not that you should aspire to stand on a stage behind a lectern or a pulpit, but God may be calling you to teach in that way, or he may be calling you to teach one person at a time. That's actually the best kind of discipleship anyway. And those of you who are parents, you have no choice but to teach. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 7 says, You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. We learn from the Old Testament that there were schools of prophets. And we know from Jewish literature that there were schools that were established while the Jews were in exile in Babylon. And those intensive studies happened in houses that we now call a Beit Knesset, a synagogue. And archaeologists have discovered a synagogue that was built more than 150 years before Yeshua appears on the scene. And of course, today we have yeshivas and uh, we have a, we have Beit Midrashes. These are schools or like colleges of the scriptures, but it's mostly Talmud and not the scriptures themselves. And many of them are right across the street from us, by the way. You know, the great universities of our day, especially those in North America, were established by men and women of God who stood strong in the scriptures and they wanted everybody to learn them. In fact, those... Names are well known to most of us. Harvard, Yale, Princeton. They were all established by strong believers. And in fact, did you know this? That in some of those schools, Hebrew, biblical Hebrew, was a compulsory, compulsory course. When I went to seminary, I studied New Testament Greek, but I never studied biblical Hebrew. It wasn't a priority. And it still isn't in many seminaries. Next week, this week, Israel College of the Bible will have its graduation. Many students, including students who have received their doctorates through the college, will graduate. I don't know if you know this, many don't, but Israel College of the Bible was once King of Kings College. Dr. Ray Gannon was on our King of Kings pastoral team back in the late 80s, and we both had a vision to see a full-time ministry training institution established here in Israel. And so we started in 1990, King of Kings College right here in Jerusalem. Well, our vision was to eventually turn it over to local Israeli leaders. And within five years, we were able to do that. And we suggested a change name to Israel College of the Bible so that it wouldn't be tied to just one congregation or one stream in the body. And that college has done phenomenally well, far better than it would have if we were still in leadership. And I'm thrilled that thousands of Israelis have studied in Israel College of the Bible. Most of them Jews, but many Arabs as well. 
Hundreds have graduated and many are in full-time ministry as pastors and teachers and in other careers as well. So this brings me to my final point. We need to, to go forward, we need to go back. I've said that we need to go back to know God's word. We need to go back to understand God's word. We need to go back to teach God's word. And finally, we need to go back by applying God's word. Applying God's word. Listen to this. Verse nine and following of Nehemiah chapter eight. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep, for the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites quieted all the people, saying, be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink, to send portions, and rejoice greatly, because they understood the words that were declared to them. They went and did what the word of God said because they now had understood it. But you know, we can read, we can understand and even teach the Bible till we're blue in the face, but if we don't apply it to our own personal lives, then we're in trouble. James actually says we're deceived. Listen to what he says, James chapter one, verse 22 and following, but be doers of the word and not just hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. So from our text in Nehemiah, We see that the scriptures they had heard and that were taught to them that day not only impacted their minds academically, but their spirits and their souls as well. The first way they applied those scriptures was in their own spiritual and emotional state. It says in verse nine that all the people wept and when when they heard the words of the law. They applied what they had learned by repenting, mourning for their sins. And scriptures have a way of impacting us in the inner core of our being. In Luke chapter 24, verse 32, those two disciples who had met Yeshua on the road to Emmaus said to one another, did not our hearts burn within us when we talked, when he talked to us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? I journal, and in my journal, I have a number of sections that I go through. It's my discipline I've done for many years. The one I have right after my reading is confession. And it really stands for confession and repentance. So after I read the scripture, then I ask the Lord to show me, is there any area that I'm falling short of doing according to what I've just read in this passage of scripture? And and almost every day, there's something where I'm falling short and I confess it to the Lord. And I mourn for that sin just as the people did when they were impacted by the reading of God's word. And then we read that the people were then instructed to stop weeping. Okay, you've confessed your sins. You've mourned for your sins. Now, be joyful. 
In fact, they're gonna be joyful for the next long while. They're headed into the most joyful feast of all, the Feast of Tabernacles, and they're told, go and build booths. And there's a whole description of the way they build booths, which was really a celebration of joy. And we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9, where Paul is uh, commending the Corinthian believers because they had responded to an earlier correction of them, a rebuke to them. And this is what he said, now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sor sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing, for godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. If repentance is not part of your regular devotional life, then I believe you're not gonna experience the kind of joy that they had knowing that once they've confessed their sins, knowing God is faithful and just and will forgive their sins, it leads to joy, the joy of salvation, praise God. My father-in-law, who was a pastor, would often say, all word and no spirit, and you'll dry up. All spirit and no word, you'll blow up. The word and the spirit, and you'll grow up. I wanna encourage you as I bring this to a close, that not only do we need good teachers, good commentaries, good tools, like a carpenter has tools, and there's so many free tools now on the internet, and I could recommend lots of good ones out there. But we need the Holy Spirit to teach us. We need the Holy Spirit to move us to apply God's word to our life. This is what it says in Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 25 and following. Listen to this. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. How are they gonna do them? By being motivated by the Holy Spirit who comes inside of them to move them forward in doing the will of God. I'm a big <laughs> promoter of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Almost every sermon, I invite people to ask the Holy Spirit to fill them afresh and to empower them to be able to obey God. I don't think I'm ever going to stop doing that because it's the key to obedience. It's the key to joy in doing God's perfect will. I trust that you see the, the law of the Lord, the word of God, the instructions of the Lord. It's a better way than, better translation than law, by the way. The instructions of the Lord. That it would be a delight. That you would hunger like the people that day hungered to hear the word, invited Ezra to read it to them and stood there for five hours. This is what the psalmist says, Psalm 119, verse 97. Oh, how I love your instruction. It is my meditation all the day. Psalm 119, verse 162. I rejoice at your word as one who finds great treasure. And Psalm 119, verse 174. And your law or your instruction is my delight. My delight. I hope my challenge and hopefully inspiration tonight will lead you 
to leave this place moving forward by going back. If you do need to go back, and most of us do probably, go back to know the Word of God. Read it every day. To understand it. Learn how to teach it so you can spread the will, will and purposes of God through the good news, the preaching and the teaching, and the sharing even one-on-one. -on -one. And that each and every one of us personally will apply God's Word. That be life transformation. And that everyone who sees us will say, what? What's going on with you? There's something different, something wonderful. I'd love to have what you've got. And then you take them to the Word of God. 